And if you're visiting with us today, I'll remind you that 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament are the events before Christ in the Bible. And then the New Testament is Christ's life and what happens after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And within the Old Testament, there are different genres. There's poetry, there's prophecy, and there is history. And that's what we find here in 1 Samuel, that this is a book of divine inspired history. And even if you weren't a, a history fan in high school or in college, that we can't ignore the history recorded for us in scripture. Because this isn't simply telling us what happened or the bare facts or the bare events, but what we have in the Bible is from God. It's an inspired telling of history that gives not only historical events, but it gives us God's divine interpretation of those events, and it shows us patterns of how God works in the world, how he works in your life, how he works in my life, how he works in salvation. And you'll remember the context as we come to 1 Samuel 14, but last week we looked at chapter 13. You'll remember this king, Saul. He was the, the first king of ancient Israel. Before his time, Israel had been ruled by judges who a, a new judge would be raised up in each generation but Saul was the, the first king and Israel had demanded a king like all of the other nations that they wanted the stability of leadership that they saw in the surrounding pagan world and so it was a gradual process for Saul to become king he was anointed privately by the great prophet Samuel the great kingmaker of Israel and then he was eventually chosen as king as they cast lots, and he was hiding in the baggage. He didn't want to take the reins of kingship. I think he was afraid that God wouldn't equip him. But then eventually he won a great battle against the Ammonites. He established himself as king. He reigned, we, we said last week, for two years, two of a total of 40 years of his reign. And he faced a great trial. He was tested by the Lord as the, they faced a great Philistine army and all of his troops started to run away. They were hiding in the wells and, and the rocks and trying to, to sneak across the Jordan River uh, that he was, everything was falling apart. And he'd been told by God, wait for seven days at Gilgal. And then the prophet would come and tell him what to do. But then he failed to wait on the Lord. He himself offered sacrifice that wasn't lawful for him to offer for only the priests. And then Samuel came and we looked last week at how Saul refused to repent. He was confronted in his sin. He dug his heels in. He justified himself. He tried to make excuses, but he did not turn to the Lord. And then we saw that that's terrifying announcement that he was rejected as being king over God's people. That God would choose another king after his own heart. And that's where we come in chapter 14. That there's this enormous Philistine army with the latest weaponry of the time. Chariots and horses and soldiers. And they have the high ground. 
and Israel is terrified, and they're, they're running away, and, they, and the king has been rejected by God. And this is where Jonathan, the, the son of Saul, steps onto the scene of this narrative. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 14, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying at the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes, passes, by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side, a rocky crag, uh, and one on the other. The name of the one was Bozes, the name of the other, Sinia. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I and with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And at the first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a great panic 
in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Bethaven. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we know that you can work through many, you can work through few, that you are the sovereign God. So, Father, we pray that today you would work through your holy, inerrant word, that you would comfort, strengthen, encourage, and challenge us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a church plant, a church that is coming together with Crosspoint to become one church under the leadership, vision, mission, values of hope, that we want to be successful in our mission from the Lord. And success in our mission from the Lord doesn't look like success as it's reckoned according to the world around us. That for us, success would mean being a healthy, self-sustaining, self-governing church where we see people come to faith and people baptized, where we're raising up the next generation in the fear of the Lord, where we resolve conflict biblically, where we have a strong community, where we love one another well, where we show hospitality and welcome those who are outside the church where we raise up missionaries and send them out around the world, where we plant other churches, where we care for the weak and the marginalized and the outcast, that that would be the, the picture of success in the mission of Hope Church. But as we look at our text today from 1 Samuel 14, we see this man... Jonathan, the son of Saul, 
And he was successful in his mission from the Lord. And so today we're going to draw out five lessons on ministry success from Jonathan. And so here's the first lesson. That if we want to be successful in our mission from the Lord, we need to identify our enemy. That we need to identify our enemy. Look at how Jonathan, the son of Saul, identifies his enemy in our text. So look at verse 1 again in your Bible. It says that one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor. And as a side note, a prince like Jonathan would have an armor bearer who would carry his equipment, but it wasn't just somebody who carried equipment, but he would also be a bodyguard, someone who would fight alongside Jonathan in the battle. But Jonathan says to this assistant, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And then look how he says, Almost the exact same thing in verse 6. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And uncircumcised was a way of speaking of those who are outside of the, the visible covenant community of God's people. It's a way of speaking of those who didn't have the, the covenant sign of God's people, which in the Old Testament was circumcision. And as he looks at his enemy, as he identifies his enemy, it is a superior force according to the world's reckoning. They have better equipment. You'll remember at the very end of chapter 13, it talked about how the Israelites were reliant on the Philistines to sharpen their weapons, that, that the Philistines controlled the, the weapon economy of the time, and so Israel was trying to find even a sharp sword, that they were trying to use their farming equipment to fight the battle. So they were outgunned, as it were. The, the Philistines had the superior position. They had the, the high ground. And then Israel was scattering, and the text says that at this point Saul only had 600 men following him, opposing thousands of Philistines. So it seemed like a hopeless situation. But yet you see the, the clarity of Jonathan. This is our enemy. And as we think about the church today, we also need to identify the enemy. And of course, the enemy is different from the Old Testament context. For the Old Testament believer, the, the visible enemy was the, the uncircumcised, those outside the visible community, the surrounding nations like the Philistines. But as New Testament believers with the Great Commission from Jesus, when we think of those outside of the, the visible covenant community, that we see not simply an enemy, but we see our mission field, those we are called to, to love and to serve and to lay our lives down for, that the surrounding world in that sense are not our enemy, they are those we are called to reach with the, the gospel. But yet, just like Jonathan, we are still called to identify our enemy. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore, he says, put on the whole armor of God. And so according to the Bible, that we do face an enemy. And it's not the Philistine horde with the high ground and superior weapons. But in a sense, it's the demonic horde of evil, spiritual evil in the heavenly places that we face. And that's something I actually appreciate about the Halloween decoration across the street. When you, when you come in, the, the demon that's tied up to the, to the tree out there. Uh, the, the first day I came in and, and saw the, the demon there, I thought, this is actually kind of great because it, I think it's this visible picture of invisible reality, that, that if, if we could somehow put on a spiritual lens, that it would be the forces of, of evil and then the hope of the gospel. So an, an embassy of light across from evil and darkness that, that is waging war against the people of God, seeking to destroy it. That it, it's, it's a wonderful picture of the gospel hope and, and what the actual mission of hope is to be a, a light of the gospel, clearly identifying the enemy. And of course, this is true for you as well, that it's not just the mission of the church, but as a believer, you have an individual mission from the Lord that you are called to to use your gifts to reach your friends and your family and your neighbors, and that you need to identify your enemy. You need to know the spiritual forces of evil that are arrayed against you. So again, Jonathan identifies his enemy. And that's our first lesson from him, that we need to identify our enemy. But then we can draw out a second lesson from Jonathan here in our text, that if we want to be successful in our mission from the Lord, we second need to clarify our theology. That we need to clarify our theology. Look at how Jonathan clarifies his theology in verse 6. He says that they're going to go up to the garrison of the uncircumcised. And then he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. And so you can see his humility there as he clarifies his theology. This isn't some sort of triumphalistic, name it, claim it theology of warfare in an Old Testament context. He's not saying that, well, we're the covenant people and the Lord is on our side. And if we go to face the Philistines, we're guaranteed victory because God wouldn't allow his people to suffer or to die. But there's this note of humility that, it may be that the Lord will work for us. And it's the same thing for the church, that when we consider our mission and the spiritual battle of the church, that in the most broad sense, there is a promise from Christ that he will build his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and the success of the church throughout the ages is guaranteed. But yet for individual congregations, that promise doesn't necessarily hold in each and every case. There are congregations that are planted. There are congregations that close their doors, that struggle, that, that end up not being able to, to make it as a local congregation. And that's not in, in no way saying that God is not keeping his promises. But even a faithful church can, can struggle, can, 
can have hardship. And so how do we think about success? And we, we see the humility, this clarity of Jonathan's theology. But then we also see his boldness. That he says, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That God is sovereign. He is completely and utterly in control. There are no limitations for God, no hindrances from God, that he can do anything that he wants. He can accomplish anything for his people. And perhaps Jonathan is even thinking of the not too distant past from his perspective of Gideon, the great judge who delivered the people from Midian with just a few men, that it it didn't take a vast army to win the victory. Uh, That I, I heard someone say that when if you're alone with God on your side, that you're always in the majority. <laughs> uh, and that's true, that, that we are alone with God on our side, that we are always in the majority, that he can work through few, he can work through many. And that is so important for us to remember as a church that wants to be successful in our mission from the Lord. That it's not about how much money we have or how many people we have or the demographic of the people, that ultimately God can work through few or through many, that he can accomplish his purposes, that he can, can show his power despite all of our natural limitations. And so, yes, we shouldn't be triumphalistic or lose the sense of humility, but then also we should have that gospel boldness that God can do anything, that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so again, we see Jonathan here clarifying his theology. And that's our second lesson, that we need to clarify our theology as well. But then third, we can draw out another lesson from Jonathan here, that if we want to be successful in our mission from the Lord, that we need to formulate a plan. That we need to formulate a plan. Look at how how Jonathan formulates a plan in this text. In verse 1, you see that he, he plans to go over to the Philistines, and it says that he did not tell his father at the end of verse 1. And that is interesting. It shows that there's already maybe a beginning of a rupture in the father-son relationship between Jonathan and Saul. But at this point, you see the contrast because Saul is rebelling against God. He's been rejected by God. But then here, Jonathan is wisely not telling his father. And as a side application, there can be times if we're pursuing the Lord's calling and ministry where initially maybe you don't tell somebody who would discourage you in following the Lord's will for your life. That, that he continues forward in what he knows God is calling him to do. And he lays a plan. And then look at how he outlines his plan for us in verse 8. He says to his armor bearer, behold, we will cross over to them and we'll show ourselves to them. And they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our places and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands. And this shall be the sign to us. 
Now, it's a plan, but it's not exactly one that you would consider a smart plan. <laughs> uh, again, if you're thinking of just pure military strategy, because he's going to go up with only two men to a superior force on the high ground. And then he says, the first thing we're going to do is show ourselves to the enemy so that they see us, and we're, we're not even going to have the element of surprise. And then if they come down to us, we're going to hold our ground. But if they say, come up to us, then we're going to go up because the Lord has given them into our hands. And as you look at the, the geographical uh, description of the, the terrain in our text in, in verse 4 uh, through verse 5, that you see that there are these, this valley with really a hill, mountain, and it, it, on two sides, and it, it says that that the name of the one was Bozes, which most scholars think means slippery, and then Sina, which means thorny. So we're going to come and we're, we're going to go up slippery and thorny up to the army on all fours to fight the battle. It's a foolish plan according to the world's reckoning. But yet I think that we can miss the fact that he does have a plan. That he's not just saying, well, God can win through few or through many, and I'm going to sit around and play video games all day and let somebody else win the battle because God can work through few, so my role in it really isn't that important. But instead, he lays a, a step. We're, we're going to do A, we're going to do B, and then if B happens, we're going to do C or maybe D. So he, he's laying out a clear, practical course of action in advance before the actual engagement with the enemy. And as we think about the church, our call to, to minister to those around us, that we see that the same principle applies, that we can formulate a bold, audacious plan, we could formulate a plan that would fail if God is not involved, but yet there, there needs to be a plan, concrete steps. And that's something that we're seeking to do as a church. And if you look at the calendar that is posted on the website, you can see the events, the outreach ministries that are coming up in the life of our church. Step A, step B, step C, laying out this concrete path, which is important as we seek to be successful in our mission from the Lord. So that's our third lesson from Jonathan, that we need to formulate a plan but then the fourth lesson from Jonathan, in a sense, turns the, the third lesson upside down. Because here's the, the fourth lesson, that if we want to be successful in our mission from the Lord, we need to give up our plan to the Lord. And you notice that, that Jonathan plans to not be completely in control of his plans, that, that in a sense he was expecting to have to, to watch, remember we talked about that last week, watching and waiting on the Lord, that, that watching and waiting is not contrary to making plans and establishing a pathway forward, that, that he's prepared to, to wait. He's going to see what's going to happen, and then he's going to act accordingly based on the providence of God, that the path that God puts before him. And that is so important for us as well that we can form plans all day. This is how I'm going to encourage my neighbor. This is how I'm going to reach someone in need. This is how 
the church is going to move forward. But then God has a pattern of, of upending our plans, that seldom do our plans turn out the way that we expected. And, and that's okay to, that they don't always turn out because we're called to be constantly waiting and watching and adjusting to what God is actually doing, being sensitive to God's plans and purposes and providences at work in the world. So then that's the, the fourth lesson from Jonathan here, that we need to give up our plan to the Lord. And then here's the, the fifth and the, the final lesson from Jonathan, that if we want to be successful in our mission from the Lord, we need to step out in faith. That we need to step out in faith. Because you'll notice that, that Jonathan, he had identified the enemy, he had clarified his theologies, he had formulated a plan, he'd given that plan up to the Lord. But when they get to the actual moment of decision, it happens just as his plan predicted, that they, they show themselves to the Philistine garrison, and essentially the Philistines say, oh, you finally crawled out of your hole to come and fight. Come up to us, and we're going to teach you a lesson. And so, with this incredible boldness, Jonathan says, Come, let's go forward. The Lord has given them into our hands. And they climb on all fours up the, the mountain, slippery and thorny. We don't know exactly how long it takes, but they are in an exposed position. At that point, the Philistines could have just rolled heavy stones down on them and been done with the matter, but the, the Philistines were toying with Jonathan and his armor bearer, wanting him to get to the top so that they could be defeated and humiliated by a superior force. But then he gets to the top, he begins to, to fight, there is, it says an earthquake that the ground shakes, and they begin to fall before Jonathan and his armor bearer, and he begins to see the, the victory coming. But yet I think that if we were to get into the, the psychology of Jonathan as he's climbing the mountain to face the Philistines, that he didn't know for sure if he would have the ultimate victory himself. I think that he, and by faith, was assured in the victory of God against the forces arrayed against the people of Israel. He knew that God would keep his, his covenant promises to his people, and maybe he would be a part of that. But I don't think Jonathan knew whether he would live or die in the end. There was no sort of special supernatural vision for Jonathan to say that he would survive the battle. That in a sense, this could be a, a suicide mission, as it were, that he's, he's going perhaps to death, but knowing that God is calling him to it, this, this difficult journey. And it reminds me of something that you read in The Lord of the Rings. I I've been rereading The Lord of the Rings recently, so if you hear me having Lord of the Rings illustrations, um, it's, it's in my mind right now. But if you know the story, remember how Gandalf, the, the wizard, uh, appears to have died in the mines of Moria facing the, the Bulrog of Morgoth. And as the, the fellowship leaves the mine, they're questioning the wisdom of Gandalf. And this is what Argorn said in reply. He said that the council of Gandalf was not founded on foreknowledge of safety for himself or others, 
There are things that are better to begin than to refuse, even if the end may be dark. And I think that that applies. There are, the, the counsel of Gandalf is not founded on foreknowledge of safety for himself. And it's the same thing here in our text, that the, the, the counsel of, of Jonathan was not founded on foreknowledge of safety for himself. But again, there are things that are better to begin than to refuse, even if the end may be dark for us. And that's why Richard Phillips, in his commentary on our passage, says that it's better for Christians to act daringly, acknowledging the possibility, even the certainty of failure, should the Lord not help, but knowing that God is often pleased to bless bold initiative in faith. That we are called to, to go out and fight spiritual giants, to, to fight spiritual dragons, to go out not knowing what will happen to us. Will we make a fool of ourselves when we share the gospel with someone? Will our church succeed in the end, or will this ministry have the outward results that we desire from it? That we can't predict, and, and our path is not founded on the foreknowledge of safety for ourselves or for others, but it is founded on the, the, the glorious promises of God that he is with us, that he will work through his people and for his people, for his glory. And that promise is for you individually as a believer and for the church together. And then in the end, who gets the glory for all of this? Because you see what happens in our text, that is, Jonathan begins to fight, and as the earthquake takes place, that the Philistines are thrown into a panic and they turn their swords against one another. There's confusion in the camp. And there's also the note that some of the Hebrews had defected to the Philistine side in a desire for safety. And then they turned on the Philistines and then all the people who were hiding in the caves came out to fight. And then it says that Saul, the unfaithful king, is still sitting and waiting, not acting in faith, not stepping up in faith. And there's this note that he's with the, the priest who's defined as the, one of the descendants of Eli, the rejected priestly line. So here's the rejected king of Israel with the rejected priest sitting around waiting and they hear and, and then they begin to consult the Lord. But then Saul even says, let's stop consulting the Lord and let's just go fight. And so they go forth, and there's victory. But then look at the, the final verse of the text. And it says that, so the Lord saved Israel that day. It doesn't say Jonathan saved the people. It doesn't say Saul saved the people. It doesn't even say that their, their clever plans saved Israel, that it was the Lord that saved his people. That all of the glory goes to God. And this is true for any place where we succeed in ministry. Whether it's our own individual ministry as a believer or the church together. That if there is ministry success that we can't claim anything from ourselves or boast of anything from ourselves. That it is the Lord who works. The Lord who brings 
salvation. It's the Lord that gets the ultimate glory. And that will be true for us as a church. And ultimately then in, in verse 6, we see again that, that theological clarity where he says, For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And of course, as we come to this meal here today, we see that truth on display here. That the Lord can save by many and he can save by few. And especially when we consider eternal salvation, not just from the power of the Philistines, but from the power of sin and death itself. But was that accomplished by many or by few? And then in, in the ultimate sense, it was few. That our salvation was accomplished by, by one man who was the son of a king, but not an unfaithful king of Israel, but the, the faithful king of the universe, his heavenly father. And then Jesus comes as the, the prince of peace with a, this bold, audacious plan that according to the world standards, would it work to, to live a life of humility, suffering and service, to, to die and to lay his life down for his people. And that at the very end of his life, as he'd been condemned, Jesus also climbed a mountain, presumably on all fours, it was thorny, it was slippery, but it was not the mountain of ancient Israel that we see in our text here, but it was a mountain called the Skull, called Golgotha, where Jesus crawled up after being beaten and whipped and abused, and he went up to the, the demonic hordes that were saying he put his trust in God. Where is God now? He was being taunted by the forces of evil, just as Jonathan and his armor bearer were being taunted here in the text, and that Jesus entered that path without the assurance of safety for himself. In fact, it was the perfect divine foreknowledge of suffering and death that he accomplished for you and for me as we put our trust in him. And that's what we see here in this meal, that Jesus suffered, that his his body was broken, his, his blood was shed, that he, he poured himself out for us, proving that truly salvation is not in the many, but in the few, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. And so then when we consider our salvation, we can say with verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day as Jesus died for us. And as you come to this meal then, uh, we acknowledge that not everybody here believes the same thing and we hope that there are some here who don't know the lord yet that we always want hope church to be a place for for people who are exploring what christianity is about or who are still struggling in in doubt and uncertainty but the bible says that to take this without believing would be hypocrisy that it it would be a form of going through the motions and that it would be spiritually damaging for you to take this without believing. So we ask you to, to stay seated as people come forward, not to exclude you, but actually to, to protect you from that hypocrisy. And for the rest, you don't have to be a member of 
Hope Presbyterian Church or a Presbyterian church, uh, but to be one who is trusting in Christ, who has made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, not barred by the action of a church from taking this, but one who can join in professing the faith that we hold together. And so I invite you to take your bulletin again, turn to, to page 9, and we'll read this, this ancient statement of Christ's victory for us on the cross, the prince who came to save us. So please read with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Here's on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we come forward in no particular order. Come when you're ready. Uh, I'll be over here with Jonathan. I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you. You take your cup, uh, return to your chair. Uh, and we also have um, Ernie, who will be going around. Uh, this is our prepackaged. They are gluten-free. If, you, if, you, if mobility is an issue, he's welcome. He's um, happy to bring that to you. You just raise your hand. We also have gluten-free here as well. If you come in the line and you need that, you can grab it here. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being the, the God of our salvation. That we can't work salvation for ourselves. We can't win spiritual victory against the powers of evil. That only you can accomplish this by your strength. And, and so, Lord, we look to the, the true ultimate Savior, not Jonathan, the son of Saul, but Jesus Christ, the son of God. And Lord, we thank you for his victory. We thank you that he climbed the, the dangerous mountain of Golgotha, the dangerous hill, that he was nailed to the cross for us. And Lord, we thank you that as the, as the earth shook and as there was an earthquake in that time as well, as the sky was darkened, that it was showing Christ's victory, that he was taking all the sins against his people, that he was bearing your holy, righteous wrath against that sin, Father. And we thank you then that we can experience salvation despite our fear, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, that we can also come out of the rocks and holes where we have hidden, afraid, knowing that now the victory is assured because of Jesus, that we would enter the spiritual battle and stop cowering, 
and give us boldness and confidence. And we pray that this meal could strengthen us to engage in the spiritual conflict, to crawl out of the hole of spiritual cowardice, to step out in faith, to trust that you are working through your people to glorify yourself. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.